Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. In a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are thankful for all that you have done, that you are doing, and that we by faith trust and believe that you will continue to do. God, thank you so much that your care and your concern for us, that your blessings towards us, that your provision for us is not predicated on how we treat you. God, I thank you that you don't use my yesterday to determine how you will bless my today. And because we stand before you, not on our own merit, not because of our own works, not because our credentials and uh, our skill set and talents demand an audience with you, but because we stand solely on the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who interceded on our behalf, then we do now the same for those in our lives. We bring before you whoever those individuals are. We know who they are. We know those family members, those neighbors, those friends, that spouse, those children, whatever the circumstance may be who may not know you or may be so clouded, so pressed upon by the weight of life, they may not even know to cry out to you. So we now stand crying out on their behalf, God. Be God in their situation. Move in their situation. Strengthen in their situation. Heal in their situation. Protect in their situation. Encourage in their situation. Provide peace in the midst of that situation. Get glory out of their situation. God, we are quick to admit that we have not done all that you've instructed us to do. And even as we stand here today, poised to hear yet more words from you, we recognize that we have fallen short. So God, renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our determination. Make us not just folks that have been saved, but make us intentional disciples. Let us not be satisfied with just, quote unquote, getting into heaven. But let us be even more concerned with expanding your kingdom on this earth by how we walk, by how we live, by how we interact. God, I thank you for the service up until this point. I thank you for the songs of praise that have been offered up. I thank you, God, for the care and the preparation that has gone into just the setup and the production of this service. But now we come to the most important part, which is hearing from you. And because it is the most important part, God, I don't want to mess it up at all. Remove me from the equation, God. May you be on display. May your name be lifted up. May you be magnified, God. 
And when your word goes forth, let it accomplish all that you sent it forth to accomplish. It will not return to you void. You have promised that in your word. We might not see the working of your word, but we know that when your word is preached, when your word is taught, things change. And so we are excited to hear from you so that we can leave here different than the way we came in. And all those who agreed prayed in Jesus' name and said, amen. 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 Mm-mm. Amen. Well, solid word. Uh, I, I, it snuck up on me. I didn't even realize that this was season saint second Sunday. Did anybody else miss hearing the deacons sing underneath the lean on Jesus Christ my Savior? That's the way deacons in my church used to do it. So while the women and the children were holding the lean, and the deacons, they'd be on Jesus. <laughs> they couldn't wait for that part to come around. <laughs> no one picked it up. I was trying, but no one joined me. No, it's good. Look, I, I have to. You guys know that I always, when I come up here, I'm always so grateful and thankful to Pastor, and he is traveling uh, this weekend, uh, and thankful for the opportunity to preach and to stand before you to share God's word with the people of God. And I always uh, want to also thank my uh, family, my uh, daughter Hannah and my daughter Jayla, who is away, uh, and, uh, and then my wife, who is, who is special to me, y'all. Y'all don't even understand. Look, y'all ain't got the clap. I'll clap for my wife. <laughs> I don't expect you to clap. You ain't got the clap. It's all good. It's my wife. He's like, I got a wife, Charles. I can't clap for your wife. Yeah, I got a wife. That's all right. But look, here's the interesting thing, because you know how wives, they pour into you, and they encourage you. They give you what you need at that moment when you don't think you're going to get it necessarily from anywhere else. I came in, you know, we pulled in, and I, you know, I was like, hey, you need to go in and pray and get your stuff together. I was like, yep, let me go in here, give my scripture title to the guys, get the mic hooked up. So I came on in, and so I'm sitting down, then she and Hannah come in, and she sits next to me, and, and let me tell you something. She leans over, and she says, uh, okay, let's make this quick. That's what she said, let's make this quick. She didn't say, hey, I've been praying for you. I didn't I, I let the Lord use you this morning. She said, all right, let's make this quick. All in jest, all in fun. My wife is, is uh, she's really funny. I, I don't know if you guys don't know her sometimes, but she is extremely funny. Y'all think I'm the jokester. I, well, I am a jokester, but my wife can hold her own as well, and so... Uh, I love her dearly. I love my family dearly. And I'm excited for uh, this word that God has for us today. So without uh, any more ado, like my wife said, let's make this quick. Let me get on into this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to uh, Mark chapter 11, um, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11 is what we'll be reading from. And of course, with it being Palm Sunday, um, this scripture and the corresponding scriptures in the other gospels are very familiar to us. And as you're turning there, let me just talk about what the lesson aim is. The lesson aim is, is that on this Palm Sunday, believers, right? Believers, 
would reflect upon the victories that we claim because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's kind of the aim, right? That's what we're trying to get at. If you're able to stand, thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And I'm going to read the entire section. And here you will find these words. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, You may be seated. And just uh, by way of a title for the sermon... I want to talk a little bit about the triumph of the triumphal entry. The triumph of the triumphal entry. Now, as is the case with many of our biblical narratives uh, that we are familiar with, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just kind of gets replayed, right? Year after year, Easter after Easter, we know about the disciples going to get the donkey. We know about the people laying their clothes and the palm branches on the road before him. We know about the crowd shouting Hosanna. These are very, very familiar stories to us. And uh, usually, right, much is made about how in just about a week from this account that the same folks in the crowd who were shouting Hosanna in the highest would go uh, to shouting, crucify him on that Friday. And then we kind of pack it all back up, right? Put it back in the Easter sack and, and put it away until next year when we'll break it all out and do it all over again. And such is the way of many of our biblical narratives, because to help us remember them, to help us teach the children these stories, or to make them more palatable, or to make them more relatable, we tend to boil them down to kind of moralistic tales, no different than maybe an Aesop's fable. We know the characters, we know the plot, we know the general overview. There's some details in there that we kind of skip over, but we get the main idea. (laughs) And we read them as stories designed to help us to be good people and to make good life decisions. But when we do that, we often end up missing the weight or the implications of these narratives that we are so familiar with. Or worse, We actually believe that the moralistic lesson and the nuggets that we actually glean from these narratives 
actually are the main point of the narrative. For example, some might use the crowd in this text as an example of how people will be on your side one minute and then the next minute will be stabbing you in the back, but you just got to keep moving forward, keeping your eyes on God, knowing that he will take care of your haters because even though they may crucify you on Friday, resurrection is coming on Sunday. And look, I know that'll shout you. That'll dump the house. That'll make folks who haven't been in church since Christmas feel good about their Jesus. Make them feel like they had church, especially on second season. I can't even say it. Second Sunday season, Saint Sunday. <laughs> I added an extra S in there, sanctified. But to take the narratives in the Bible, right? and remove the main characters and insert ourselves into the starring role is, by definition, lessening the weight of the biblical narrative. Hear me when I say this, right? It lessens not only the weight of the narrative, but it lessens the meaning of the narrative and the message of the narrative. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know I'm messing with some of y'all right now because you love your veggie tale stories. We used to play them for our kids. They got catchy songs. I get it. You like your pictorial Bible, the picture Bible, because it boils it way down. It tells the high points of the story, and your kids are getting that in their mind, and we have it in our minds. And I'm not trying to say, right, that you cannot draw life applications from biblical narratives. That's not what I'm saying at all. Of course you can. But what I am saying is that when the life application becomes the main point, or worse, the only point, then you walk away with, then more than likely, you're missing the point of the biblical narrative. Uh -huh. Specifically in this text, based on everything that Jesus had been doing up until this moment, there was an expectation among the crowds and the disciples that Jesus' triumph was at hand. What they saw with their eyes and what they were experiencing in this moment only further bolstered their expectations. So then to take this story and make it about haters, do you, do you see what I'm, do you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at? <laughs> to, to make this a story about, I know there's some folks on your job and they be, uh, that's not what this, that's not at all what this has in mind. But what we do, though, is we, we politely say, Jesus, could you just get out the way? Let me step into this because this story is about me. I appreciate what you did for me, Jesus, but I need something for, I need a right now kind of word. <laughs> all this old crazy stuff. Right? I need something that speaks to me right now. I needed to hear about how those people who were hating me, who were trying to crucify, I'm going to get resurrection on Sunday. Let me take that now back into the workplace. And I've left Jesus over here, right? So what I want to be able to do, what I'm hoping to do, is to take this familiar narrative and ask the question, why is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem viewed as triumph? And you may be thinking, well, obviously, Elder Wright, we know why it's viewed as triumph. But I don't want us to look at it through our contemporary lens looking back. 
What I want us to do as much as possible is to look through the eyes of a first century Jew who was in the crowd when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And what we're going to do then is look at briefly, I hope briefly, uh, is, is, is that, and what we'll see hopefully is that there is something going on in the physical, right, in plain sight that the people are reacting to, but there's also something happening at the same time happening in the spiritual realm that isn't always immediately obvious and that, frankly, we know the story, the crowd misses. But it is where the true triumph actually occurs in Jesus' entry. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. Now, when we think of the triumphal entry, just as we already discussed, there are some major elements that we typically pull out, those high points of the narrative. There are actually four things that I want us to talk about. Three of them are the ones that you could answer on your own in your sleep. One is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, crowds placing palm branches in front of him, and then lastly, the crowd shouting, Hosanna. Those are the three points that most of us would come up with when we talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The fourth one that is a more subtle point that I don't think we think about that most of us, if we were to retell the story, would probably leave this part out is Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. So four things, three that are very familiar, the fourth one that's a little bit more obscure. So let's just walk through these very quickly. Mark records that Jesus instructs the disciples to obtain a colt, which is a young donkey, right, and that has never been ridden. For him, Jesus, to ride now upon and enter into Jerusalem. Now, we're going to be jumping around a lot of scriptures. What I suggest you do is maybe just jot the scripture down. I'm going to read many of them to you, and then you can go home and double check and look at them more uh, in depth. But uh, for this one, right, if we look at some Old Testament texts, what we see is that in Numbers 19 and 2, 19 chapter, second verse, it describes that a red heifer was to be sacrificed by the priest as a part of a purification ritual, and this heifer was to be uh, unyoked, unblemished, never used before. Deuteronomy 21 and 3 describes another instance where a heifer is to be sacrificed for when there had been an unsolved murder in the land. And again, this heifer is to be unblemished and unyoked and unused. 1 Samuel 6 and 7 describes two cows that are used to pull a cart, that cart upon which the Ark of the Covenant set. And it is, it is described that these two cows are to have never been yoked before to perform this task. And what we see, right, in Numbers and in Deuteronomy and in 1 Samuel is that animals that are used for religious or sacrificial purposes had to be animals that had no defect, that had no blemish, had never worn a yoke, that had never been worked or had never pulled a plow or a cart because they were to serve a special, holy, purified, sanctified purpose. And they couldn't have previously been doing some other thing and then pulled from that other thing in order to be offered to the Lord. But they had to be set apart 
uniquely dedicated to the Lord, to serve the purposes of the Lord. What I specifically like about the first Samuel uh, example, and if you, if you go back and read it, you'll get the full context, but the Philistines had captured and taken the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. Could you imagine the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of your God resided? Another people coming in and whipping and beating you so much that they take the Ark of the Covenant from you. So the Philistines take the Ark, they take it back to their villages and their towns, and it's... It's actually pretty funny. It starts just cutting up. It, 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 it wreaks havoc in their land. They, they take it and put it in the temple of one of their gods, and their god statue falls over. Then they move it to another place. People are getting sick and dying. Uh, rats are infesting stuff, and they keep moving. Everywhere they move the ark, it's bad stuff happens. So finally, the Philistines say, you know what? It was a bad idea for us to have taken the ark of the covenant. And so what do they do, right? They say, look, we need to return it to Israel. And how are we going to return it? Give us two milk cows that have never been yoked before. Yoke them up to a cart, place the Ark of the Covenant on it, and point them in the direction that they need to go and, and let them take it on back. But get this, get this again, right? When I talk about don't, don't, we, we, we tell the story, it's a narrative, we know the characters and the plot, but don't miss this. Because think about it like this. Don't just think about it in terms of, man, the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant and they realized it was a bad idea, so they sent it on back. But also pick up on this, that in order for the presence of the Lord to move back into the presence of the people of Israel, they chose two animals that had never been yoked before to carry the presence of the Lord back to the people of God. And again, thinking about this more holistically, not just as a narrative. So, it is as if Jesus is saying, me riding into Jerusalem at this point in history, at this time, at this space, at this place, to finally do what I came to do is of such great significance and magnitude that the same criteria that has been applied to animals that were selected for service unto the Lord needs to be applied to the donkey that will be selected for service to me. Because I am the Lord. <sighs> but it is interesting to note that this donkey that had, been, that had not been ridden before was not the sacrifice. But this unblemished, unridden donkey instead was carrying the one who would be the sacrifice. <laughs> and literally, in effect, bringing the presence of God back into the people of God. Hmm. Well, let's keep pushing at this thing because the question then is, but why a donkey? Why a donkey? Because in our contemporary context, a donkey is not considered a majestic steed. Anybody in here seen Shrek? When I was, when I was thinking about this, 
Eddie Murphy's character, Donkey. Boy, he wanted to be a mighty steed, right? I don't know if you've seen the, the, when he gets his wish and he gets turned, and, but he is happy, right? He's this big horse, this white horse, and he's just, he's beautiful. He's, he's like, I'm a steed. I was a donkey, but now I want to be a steed. And that's kind of how we think about it, a donkey. <laughs> well, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 through 35, what we are seeing is David, King David, at the end of his life an elderly King David, preparing to choose his successor. And, and of course, right, we know that he chooses his son Solomon. And in this passage, he's giving instructions for Solomon's coronation. And he says, look, go get my son Solomon and put him on my mule. And then take him on my mule to the place where the priests will anoint him as king. And, right, after all of that happens, then Solomon will come and sit on my throne, my, my, to rule over Israel and Judah. Now, this is Mark's account. In Matthew's account, Matthew tells the same story, but he inserts a little reference, and he says, look, this is to fulfill what was said in the prophet, and he's quoting Zechariah chapter 9, and he refers to it where Zechariah says that uh, there will be a righteous king who is humble and who brings salvation, and that king that is humble and brings salvation will be riding on a donkey. But you're thinking, ah, oh, I see it, Charles. I see the reason for the donkey, the king's humility is not reflected in the fact that he's riding on a donkey. See, this is why we can't bring our contemporary kind of perspectives and lenses and understanding and presuppositions and assumptions to the text. Because, right, we think that Jesus is being meek and he's being lowly and he's being humble when he gets on the back of a donkey. Because we're forcing what we think about donkeys into the text. You heard these two terms, exegesis, eisegesis, right? Exegesis is what you pull out of the text. Eisegesis is what I put into the text. So I'm forcing what I think about a donkey. I think a donkey is, is not a, a noble steed. I think donkeys aren't very important. I force that into the text and I, hmm, and say, right, that's why Jesus, he's displaying his humility by riding on a donkey, right? And I dare say that some have probably even taught that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is a sign of his humility, but nothing could be further from the truth. But I can hear some of you saying, now, wait a minute, Elder Wright, are you saying that my Jesus isn't meek and lowly? No, I'm not saying that your Jesus isn't meek and lowly, but what I am saying is, is that the evidence of Jesus' humility, the evidence of him being meek and being lowly, isn't in him riding on this donkey on what we consider Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, but it is, as Paul tells us in, second, in the second chapter of Philippians, it is rooted and it is anchored in the fact that though he was God, he didn't hold on to what was rightfully his, but he willingly let go of all that he had in glory. He cut 
the veil between time and eternity and step into our timeline as a man, as a baby in a manger. And when he did that, he humbled himself by being obedient even unto the point of death. So get this now. So when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, his humility is already established. The fact that Jesus is on this earth shouts of his humility. But him riding on a donkey is a sign of Jesus doing something that's a bit uncharacteristic for him. It's him declaring loudly and clearly that not a son of David is coming to be coronated, but the son of David has finally arrived to be anointed and appointed and announced as king, and not just over Israel and Judah, but over the heavens and the earth. (laughs) Mark then records that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, The people placed before Jesus both their coats and leafy branches. Palm branches are normally associated with these leafy branches, uh, but uh, it's it's important to note that they're only mentioned and described as palm branches in John's gospel account. And to be clear, there there is no explanation kind of in Scripture on the significance of palm branches being used in this way. However, Extra-biblical historical resources, that just means stuff outside the Bible, like writings and artifacts that are from the same time period, seem to suggest that palm branches were being used as symbols of Jewish attempts to win their independence from their oppressors. And and it stands to reason that the people, although in Jerusalem and able to exercise a certain amount of freedom, still long to be out from underneath the thumb of Roman rule. Think about it. Israel, a nation whose history is predicated, built upon them occupying land that was promised to them by their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has seen only brief moments in their history of self-governance and true independence. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, their true and lasting independence has not been experienced by this generation that is witnessing Christ coming into Jerusalem, nor by recent generations. Hmm. And so the arrival of the son of David, the one who would ascend to the throne of his ancestral father, heralding the return of the Jewish monarchy, the impending overthrow of Rome, and would result in Jewish self-rule in the land that was promised to them by Abraham. So you're stacking all this up, right? If you were a first century Jew, this is what you're seeing. And and this is how you're interpreting what you're seeing because you would have been steeped in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, not just, oh, you got a scroll in your home, but you would have memorized passages The Old Testament scriptures are written in such a way in the original Hebrew such that it aids in memorization. 
They were intended to be meditated over, to be memorized, to be recited. And so as Jesus comes in on a donkey that's never been ridden, as Jesus is doing all of these miracles for the last three years and preaching and teaching in ways that no one has ever done, they are lining up what they're seeing with their eyes, with what they know from their religious tradition, and they're reaching a conclusion that this moment that Jesus comes into Jerusalem must be the day. This is the moment. Along with the palm branches, Jesus is greeted by shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It says it right there. What they think is about to happen. What they believe Jesus is ushering in. This comes from Psalm 118 and 25 where our Bible says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Where, <clears throat> now, where our English translations have the phrase, save us, in the original text would have contained the Hebrew word, hashiana. Well, I don't know Hebrew, so I'm just telling you what I'm seeing here. Hashiana, which we render as Hosanna. Now, Hashiana is a combination of two Hebrew words. It means, please help us, or help us now. It's an emphatic declaration of your need to be saved. Help us now, this moment, right now, right here. Save us. And the core of the verb is yeshaw. Stay with me. <laughs> Which means to help or to save. Yeshaw is also the same root for the Hebrew name Yeshua. Mm, you see it now which we translate as Joshua in the English. But it's also the same as Jesus' name in Hebrew. Now, this is a little confusing because when you say, how is Jesus and Joshua the same as Yeshua in Hebrew? Well, it's about the path they take to translation. Yeshua is the Hebrew. Joshua is English translated of the Hebrew. Jesus is the English translation of the Greek translation, Iesu, of Yeshua. So they're translating the same Hebrew word, but it just goes two different routes. So Joshua is Jesus. Yeshua is Joshua is Jesus. They all are Yeshua. So get this now. In the first century Jewish mindset, they are shouting to Jesus basically his name. And in effect, they are pleading with him to do what his name says he was born to do. I heard one scholar say it like this. It's almost as if they're saying, Jesus, Jesus us. <laughs> Something about the name. The cry of the crowd is the cry of a people being oppressed and desiring to be liberated, to be set free from their oppressors. And in this context, their oppressors would have been the Romans. So we've looked at the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey that has never been ridden before. We looked at the significance of the palm branches being strewn in front of him as a symbol of independence and liberty and the shouts of Hosanna, 
we just finished up. But now, let's look at this last point, which is Jesus approaching Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Going into the Old Testament again, Ezekiel, a prophet during the Babylonian exile, records a vision in which he sees and is taken to the temple. And when he gets there, there's all sorts of idolatrous abominations going on in God's house. And what he sees in the midst of the temple, these idolatrous uh, idolatrous abominations, is he sees the glory of the Lord beginning to leave the temple. And it's specifically described in two passages. The first one, Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 through 19 It says, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. We were just talking about cherubim and seraphim in that song, right? And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. That's Ezekiel's wheel inside of a wheel, right? These songs and these little catchphrases that we hear about, they're coming from Scripture. And here's the kicker. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Ezekiel 11 and 23 goes on to say, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So because of the behavior of the nation of Israel, the adoption of idolatrous abomination and practices of the surrounding nations, God's presence will no longer, can no longer, dwell in the midst of all of that sin and evil and is departing from the temple. Think about that. We talked about the Ark of the Covenant being where the presence of the Lord resided, but that was just until they could get somewhere stable, until they could get into the land that was promised to them. Because once they were there, what is it that King David wanted to do? I want to build a house for you, God. God says, I appreciate that, David, but you've got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it for me. King Solomon steps in. We just talked about him. After being anointed and appointed as king, he begins to work on the temple. And he builds his temple. The temple not only is a place for for their God's presence to dwell, but it also represents stability, safety, being at rest in the land. Because now I can build this permanent structure where we can now interface and interact with our God. I don't have to carry this ark and build this makeshift tabernacle tent everywhere we go because we're picking up stakes and moving and putting down and picking up, moving and putting down. That place now has become defiled, Ezekiel says. So much so that the place that God instructed King Solomon to build for him to dwell is a place that God says, I can no longer dwell there. Hmm. (laughs) Making now this temple just another building. For what is a building if the presence of the Lord is not there? And notice, right? 
what Ezekiel says he sees, that God's presence departs from the temple to a mountain that is on the east side of the city, which would have been the Mount of Olives. Now, at the end of Ezekiel, he sees another vision of the end-time temple. Moving to Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5 and 1 through 2, we see, he says, Then he led me to the gate. This is his angelic escort on this vision. The gate that was facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Ezekiel 43, 4 and 5 says, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Mm -hmm. So we see the glory of God departing from the temple to the east, but also returning to the temple from the east. And what we see in the text, what we typically kind of gloss over and don't pay a lot of attention to is Jesus coming from Bethphage, Bethany, over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east. And when this, right, gets stacked up with the donkey, gets stacked up with the palm branches, gets stacked up with the cries and the shouts of Hosanna, those who would have witnessed this this event would have indeed agreed that this was a triumphal entry. Ha! Of the king of the Jews, the son of David, come to finally save his people from the rule of an oppressive kingdom. But what appeared triumphal to the crowds, would in their eyes end in defeat as Jesus is subsequently arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. Could you imagine being in Jerusalem? All of this fanfare is going on. What is going on? Jesus of Nazareth is here. Oh, I heard he can do some miracles and some things. It's like, yes, child, he can. But did you see? He's riding on a donkey that ain't never been ridden. Oh, he is. He's coming from the east down from the Mount of Olives. You don't say. People are throwing palm branches in front of him. My, my. And they're shouting, Jesus, Jesus, us. (laughs) Something is going on in the city. Today just might be the day. We've been waiting for three years for him to finally do what we all thought he had come to do. We've been waiting for three years for him to ascend to his rightful place, to overthrow this kingdom of pagan folk who are oppressing the people of God. And now is the day. Those same people would have been shocked and appalled to hear Jesus has been arrested. He's arrested. When did this happen? It happened over in the night. Well, where is he now? Well, they're taking him around. They're trying him. They're trying to get this thing quick. They're trying to move this. They're trying him. What in the world is going on? Yeah, he's, he's, he's with Pilate now, and then he's going back to Herod, and Herod sends him back. But it's, it's going quick. It's happening quick. Well, where are the disciples? We can't find them. Mm -hmm. 
But I thought today was the day. I thought he was going to be the one who would deliver us. I don't know. Hey, 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 you need to come on to the town square. There's an announcement. There's a chance that somebody could be set free. Well, who are our choices? Well, there's Jesus and there's Barabbas. Man, I had a lot of faith in Jesus, but he ain't done nothing. He ain't hardly answering the questions. He ain't defending himself. At least I know Barabbas will cut somebody. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. You can keep Jesus. This dude too busy turning the other cheek. I need somebody that's going to kick some stuff over. I need someone who's going to bring us some independence. Jesus looks like he wants to die. Give us Barabbas. <laughs> mm. They couldn't wrap their minds around how such a triumphal entry, how so much hope, how so many expectations, how so much potential could so quickly unravel and fizzle into just another criminal being put to death. And in their assessment of the signs, the donkey, the palms, the shouts of Hosanna, Jesus even entering in from the east, they failed to realize that the triumph wasn't rooted in Jesus just coming to Jerusalem, but it was rooted in what he came to Jerusalem to do. See, the people thought that they needed triumph over Rome. They thought they needed triumph over this uh, ungodly kingdom that was holding them down. They wanted to be in the land to be free. <laughs> the people thought that their greatest problem was that they didn't have freedom. And at a certain point, they were right. Their greatest problem is that they did not have freedom, but they misidentified who the oppressor was. And Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the spark. It is the catalyst. It's the event that initiates, that brings about the ultimate eternal triumph that they needed more than anything else. See, because of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, grace triumphs over the law. Romans 6 and 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Forgiveness triumphs over sin. 1 John 1 and 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. Life triumphs over death. Romans 6 and 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I got a couple of more. Relationship 
triumphs over religion. Romans 8 and 15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as of sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hey, (laughs) mercy triumphs over works. Titus 3 and 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Love triumphs over wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, for God has not destined us, thank you, Jesus, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessings triumph over curses. Ephesians 1 and 3 says, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And finally, the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1 and 13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There it is. That's the triumph of the triumphal entry. Ah, I don't know what we say. What do we say? Do we say happy Palm Sunday, blessed Palm Sunday, merry Palm Sunday? I don't know what we say, but that's Palm Sunday. Don't, don't misunderstand. I think it's, I, look, I think it's cute that we've got these palm branches. Don't stop doing it. I love it. And it was cute when little man me mugged me and handed me my little cross He begrudgingly gave me my salvation. But what we can't do, and we are, look, we we, we sometimes think the world does this, but we do it ourselves because we're so familiar with these stories. We cannot, we cannot, hear me when I say this, we cannot let these just become stories. Yeah, these can't just be stories we tell. These, this, this isn't just a book. These can't just be uh, a little cute, little, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, climax, what are the points in the plot and all that, the rise and the anti, all that kind of stuff that we tell and we can tell because we know it by memory. But this is history. Specifically, redemptive history. This is God's explanation of why the world is like it is, but also why he did what he did to restore, to reconcile, to redeem the world. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's okay to tell the little story to the little kids because they, they, it's what they can grasp. But at some point, if you think the story of David and Goliath is all about you can face the giants in your life, If you think the story of Joseph rising to prominence in Egypt is about no matter where you are in life, you can go from the bottom to the top. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how we we lower? I can make up a story right now about going from the bottom to the top. I don't need, but I've got God-breathed inspired scripture. So he has to be telling me about more than just your haters ain't going to be able to get you. 
Because I'm, do you see what I'm saying? And how we make it so common. We take literally, these, these words, these scriptures, they weren't whispered to somebody in a cave somewhere who came out and said, ooh we guess what I got? This was lived out. The crowd saw Jesus coming into the city. This was lived out in life, in history, in time. And for me then to say, oh, this is such a neat, it would be like somebody taking the story of your grandparents, watering it down, just taking the high points. And you'd be like, no, 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 that's, this story ain't just for feel good. It's not just for you to get some moral nuggets, for you to, to, to get what you need to make it through another tough week at work. And don't get me wrong. The Spirit of God has the power to give you what you need to get through a week of work. But it's not the stories that give you that. It's His Holy Spirit. Hmm. So with that, what did they say? The doors of the church are open. Since we all, I, I can't get it right. Season Saint Second Sunday. I want to throw sanctified in there so bad. But the doors of the church are open. And look, just like we have a tendency to make the Bible stories common and remove the weight from them, we can have that same tendency to do that with this time. We've all heard the doors of the church are open. Is there one? Is there one? I don't have the gift of prophecy, but I already know, yeah, there's one. I know there's one. I know there's one. You know how I know there's one? Because when I was one, I was sitting in the church. <laughs> right? So I know that somebody here needs to know Jesus in the way we were just talking about him. Need to know him as the one who grants the triumph that truly matters. Jesus did not come to solve all of our problems, but he came to solve our greatest problem. And that is being separated from God because of our sin. And so at this time, if there is anyone either under the sound of my voice, watching at home, whether you're watching live or even after the fact, the invitation still stands that this time is for you not to be embarrassed, not to be concerned, not to be worried about what somebody else will say, what your parents say, what your friends say, what your husband, wife says, what anybody says. This is about huh, you recognizing that you need Yeshua, Hosanna to save you right now, right now. I know it can be heavy coming up in front of everybody. Let me tell you what's heavier. is <laughs> continuing to live a life separated from the God who gave you life. And that'll weigh on you. It will weigh on you. So my hope, my prayer, is that as we move through this Palm Sunday and then into Resurrection Sunday, 
that we would endeavor to be intentional about putting the weight back in what we're celebrating. That those of us who already have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior would have, as David said, the joy of our salvation restored, renewed. We would get excited again about what it is that Christ did for us, what he continues to do for us, and that those of us who do not know him would yield to the tug of his spirit on your heart calling you, telling you, come on. <laughs> I am the king that they were waiting for, Jesus says. I am the salvation that they were asking. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.